Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm Spiritual Engagement Coordinator uh, for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Kristen Taylor. Kristen has no stranger to the show. We've had her on a few times and uh, look forward to having her on a lot this year when we're in the Psalms, uh, for she is a poet and uh, student of poetry. Her PhD is in uh, rhetoric and writing, uh, so she's a master of uh, language and just a, an excellent guest when we're in the Psalms, but she's also a preacher uh, a uh, regular preacher and uh, interim pastor, in fact, at her local church. So we're so glad uh, that she is I'm here to bring both her uh, pastoral preaching insights as well as her uh, poetic and literary insights to bear on the Psalms. Our uh, psalm that we're studying this week, in fact, is Psalm 32, Psalm 32. So you can go ahead and turn there if you're... Uh, <laughs> Able to, although if not, no worries. We'll uh, read it for you a couple times in the course of the podcast, right at the top, including. So make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on to others so they may benefit as well. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show, uh, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text to become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening. And enjoy this conversation with Kristen. All right, well, Psalm 32, would you be willing to read it in whatever translation you choose? Yes. Okay, we're doing the NIV. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly King, ruler of all things, we give you praise for all your blessings the blessing of your forgiveness for us, that you are ready to forgive, and that you wait not for our restitution, but for our contrition 
in our sorriness, you're willing to forgive even before we've made things right. Though you long to make things right and call us to join you in making things right. And so, Lord, the, the wisdom in this psalm about where blessing lies, the wisdom of confession, the wisdom of hope and trust, may all the wisdom of this psalm work its way into our hearts today. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. So, Kristen, what do you notice? What stands out to you in Psalm 32 today? Well, the first thing that struck me when I was researching this psalm and learning about it was that it's actually intended to be a liturgical dialogue. So there's not just two perspectives in this poem. There's actually four. And I just thought that's so interesting. And I, and I've kept coming back to that over and over again. So we have this, this dialogue happening between David and God, God and David, but we have the worshipers. It's happening in the presence of the worshipers who are listening, who are being spoken to by David's, you know, speaking to them in the first couple verses. And then they get to eavesdrop on David talking to God. And then starting about verse eight, God turns around and starts talking to David. And um, in some of the notes I was reading, it was talking about, in that case, it might have been a priest who would have spoken those words to David on behalf of God. So in that way, we've got four different perspectives in this poem. And I just, I thought that was so remarkable because it reminded me of the communal aspect of poetry. And I think this is something that maybe in our current cultural context, we might struggle to to sort of understand or really grasp because poetry often when we think about poetry, maybe it's like in a book of poems that you're reading and you're sort of eavesdropping in on. It's it probably is closer to like performance poetry, you know, or slam poetry where there's an audience that's listening and participating in. In, in some respect, it made me think of um, when we lived in Bellingham, Washington for a couple of years, I got connected to the poetry scene there and they started these really cool communal poetry events called the kitchen sessions. And I think it's nationwide, but I just experienced it there where we would gather in each other's kitchens and share poetry and read poetry and they'd be poetry events. And it was just, it's this way of making poetry, you know, a collaborative collective experience. So I was thinking about that in terms of worship. I mean, maybe when we do the call and response and service, that might get a little bit closer to this too. But it definitely speaks to, I think, a cultural setting where much less individualistic and much more collectivistic. And this idea that there's a divine dialogue happening here, and it's intimate and it's personal, and everybody's invited to to the table, right, <laughs> to experience it and participate in it. Oh, that's so good, especially when we tend to think of confession and repentance as this very secretive kind of affair. Um, now you can go to the other extreme and use public confession as a weapon, as some communities can do. But nevertheless, the notion that the personal and the corporate, the divine and the human are all intertwining here. Walk me through these four speakers. I I, I saw at least three as you were walking me through it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's really fascinating, Kristen. So like verse verse one and two would be this kind of opening voice. Yeah, David speaking to the worshipers. Then in three, he shifts and he begins speaking to God. 
And now the worshipers are eavesdropping, right? They're right. listening in on this dialogue. And and I also, just a side note here, I love it because I feel like there's a moment where we transcend time here when we're reading yes. the poem, the psalm, that we are part of the gathered worshipers then also listening. There's just something so powerful to me about that of like, it's not just me, Kristen, sitting here in my chair, listening to David speak to God, I am joining thousands of years of worshipers who were invited into this dialogue. And there's something outside of time and space that's really profound to me that I am listening and being shaped and formed by this, even as the early worshipers were listening and being shaped and formed by it. Yeah. And it's possible there's even some time jumps internal in it, right? Where, because it could be that the, the confession and repentance has already taken place. And now it's being reenacted, oh. right? Because there's yes. some of these, you know, like verse five, he says, I said, I shall confess my sins to the Lord and you forgave my offending crime, right? So there's kind of this implication that there was a perhaps a private forgiveness. I mean, again, this doesn't necessarily have to be a, a David Psalm or a David Miscall in this case, it doesn't have to mean it's written by David. It could be dedicated to David or about David. I see. But, but with him as the kind of character. You know, and you even think of the story, right? He has with the Bathsheba incident, at least he has that prophet, Nathan, who comes and calls him out. And there's a moment of contrition and confession immediately. But then that would need to be sealed through something at the tabernacle, you know, because Nathan's not a priest. He's a prophet, right? So something priestly would still have to happen. Ah, interesting. So so that would work then. And then later, as this is written and reenacted, there's kind of a reenacting of and who knows, maybe any time a king sinned, this would be an important, you know, to kind of reenact David's repentance. So I think the, 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 the layers of time are already embedded in the psalm before we even show up as readers. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. And, and I, you know, not to get all sci-fi about it, but I just love the fact that like God is outside of time, right? So, so even as this poem is being created and there's maybe past contrition, the moment it's brought to the community, the, the redemption is happening again, a new, afresh with a new dimension, right? It makes me think of the power of testimony, which I'm kind of jumping ahead here. This is where this poem really takes my mind when I think about the application, but the power of testimony, you know, when we think about you have these moments with God where he speaks to your heart, he speaks to your soul and vice versa, and you have this this gift of a moment. It, it can be for us, but there's a way in which it also enlightens and informs and redeems the community when you share it, right? It's not just for us. So anyway, you made me think of that when you were talking about like for it to be sealed, right? Like God, the Holy Spirit speaking to David, but it can be sealed when it's brought to the community, the body. Yeah, I think I, I think that's where I stole that language. So Phoebe Palmer, one of the mothers of our church, she spoke of a testimony as the necessary seal to conversion as well as sanctification. So if you experience something, but if you don't put it in the envelope and seal it, it's going to fall out. It's not going to lock in. It has to be testified to. Wow. So it's wow. not that the testimony causes the experience. Mm-hmm. but that the experience is sealed by the testimony. Mm-hmm. And I think she, however she came to that conclusion, that is the logic often of the way that rituals work in the scriptures, right? It's it's not, the, the ritual in some sense doesn't cause the thing. 
you know, I mean, just for a random example, uh, Jacob, when he sees the ladder open up at Bethel and he names the place the next morning and puts up a little Karen as a testimony, right? As a witness. So it's not like the little altar he built there didn't bring God into that place. God was in the place and he didn't know it. That was revealed to him. But then he testifies to it through his action, his communal action of naming the place and is setting up an altar for later worship to take place. I think about a couple of things jumped to mind here. One, my husband, Dwayne, in the new year, took some time away. There's, we live here in Southern Ontario. We're surrounded by the Great Lakes. So we have like Huron on one side and um, Lake Ontario on the other. And he went to, he loves to go to Lake Huron to sort of have quiet time and reflect. And when he came back, it just it had this beautiful, quiet, subtle word from the Lord to his heart. And he shared it with me. And it spoke to me too. I, and now I hold on to that. I'm like, for me, it encourages me, you know, as well. It wasn't just, and now it wasn't just for him, but it was also for me too. And I think it could be for a lot more too, if, if he ever felt moved to share it widely, which he doesn't at this point. But I just, I just think of that in terms of this communal aspect of God speaking to us. That's not just for us. It's also for the body too, that it can be a blessing I think, too, of your wife's work and research and testimony that she did for her doctoral work. I often think of that when I think of testimony, the way it's formational um, and the way that it shapes us and seals, yeah, the work that the Spirit's doing in us. And then, of course, I just can't get away from the rhetorical aspect of that, right? Like the, the very naming of something, when we're saying it out loud, there's there's a reason why there's power in that, right? Because it is formational, not just for us, but for the community and the body being sealed together as one. It's very rarely, I don't know, I just feel like, okay, I guess I could just run out on a tangent here, but it makes me, I've just been reading this book called The Anthropocene Re- Reviewed by John Green. And um, he talks about the invention of the game Monopoly and the invention of the light bulb. And, you know, the game Monopoly was credited to, I forget the guy's name. But the reality is it was actually created by a woman who was trying to teach children about the dangers of unchecked capitalism. <laughs> but this guy came along and he he polished it and he made it. I don't know he, I, all the things he did, but it became this huge blockbuster hit, right? And it became the form that it is now, which ironically is not really what she intended it to be. Then he also talks about um, the invention of the light bulb and... Uh, you know, we all say Thomas Edison created the light bulb, right? But the reality is he built and improved patents Yes, that were actually created by Canadians, a little plug for yeah. Canada, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's not to say that, like, my point here is not to say, you know, cast blame or say, look at these, these rotten, you know, fellows. The reality is, I think what we sometimes, we in America and North America love to talk about the single individual who has accomplished this great thing, who has invented this great thing, who's had a mountaintop experience with the Holy Spirit. And the reality is that it, we are all interconnected, building off of one another, feeding off of one another, offering the strands of things that become, there's not a single singular moment now. And I do think there are some talents that are just better, you know, some artists that just have elevated talent, but this, I don't know, all this ties together in my mind. When I think about David's having this divine conversation with God, 
God is having this divine conversation with David, but it's not actually, that's not the pinnacle of it, right? The, the, it's actually the summation of, of the, all of the ways in which God is speaking to the worshipers and the priest and that, you know, all the body all together, right? And I just wonder what it would look like for us to sort of shift away from that more individualistic approach to God speaking to us, which I absolutely believe is important, but to think of it in terms of how is that woven together in the larger narrative of the body and the ways that God is speaking to all of us and building all of us to a message that he has for us, right? So anyway, just some rambling thoughts. No, it didn't seem like a ramble at all. I mean, it's it's connected to this structural observation with which we began our conversation that this is a dialogue that it has in the individual is not lost. It's not a reduction or, or it's not a, it's not a subsuming of the individual into a community, which is just a, a communitarianism that can be just as demonic as an individualism. So the individual has their own experience and failure and need to repent and yet that is intertwined with and put into dialogue with the community. And it might be because the main character of the story is not David, but the Lord, you know, who is neither an individual nor a community, but the source of both individuality and community, to put it abstractly. But um, yes. So yes. I, I, th- I think that was all sort of really important sort of way of moving in and out of this highly dialogical, very personal, but also very corporate prayer that the Psalms in general give us and that Psalm 32 in particular embodies. Let's take a quick break and come back and explore some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Uh, Kristen Taylor, and we're looking at Psalm 23. I'll read it again so it's fresh in our ears. This is from Robert Alter's translation, which I've been using this year as we've been going through the Psalms on the show. So here goes, Psalm 32, a David Moskal. Happy of sin forgiven, absolved of offense. Happy the man to whom the Lord reckons no crime in whose spirit is no deceit. When I was silent, my limbs were worn out. When I roared all day long, for day and night your hand was upon me, my sap turned to summer dust. My offense I made known to you, and my crime I did not cover. I said I shall confess my sins to the Lord, and you forgave my offending crime. For this every faithful man prays to you in time of need, only that the rush of mighty waters should not reach him. You are a shelter for me, from the foe you keep me. With glad songs of deliverance you surround me. Let me teach you, instruct you in the way you should go. Let me counsel you with my own sight. Be not like a horse, like a mule without sense, the bit and the reins, his adornment, to keep him from drawing near you. Many are the wicked's pains, but who trusts in the Lord, kindness surrounds him. Rejoice in the Lord and exult, O you righteous. Sing gladly, all upright men. 
the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So back to your structural comment, would you say like the third voice starts in verse eight, right? The let me teach you. Yeah, I, well, the fourth voice, I would say. Well, because- what's the third then? Is that the little inter- intersection in six, that kind of interjection? So, okay. So actually maybe it could be the third, the third. And so, I mean, so we know, like, none of this, we know for sure. It's just yeah, guessing. No, just, so. just how I imagine it in my head. So yeah. And in verse eight, then is when God starts to speak to gets, starts to speak to David and just in the, the notes I had read, the research notes I had read, it could be that David pivots and he is being the voice of God to the worshipers. It also could be that there's a priest yeah. Who's then speaking the voice of God to David? And in that case, that that would be the fourth perspective, right? That even though he's being the mouthpiece, I of see God, what you mean. Got he's it. there too, right? And he's he's witnessing and or she, well, I guess it would have been he, he in that day and age witnessing and participating uh, in this divine dialogue. Yeah. Okay. So I see four four characters. Okay. I was thinking four, four sections, four characters, but it's more complex than that. Yeah. No, that's yeah. great. That's great. Well, eight and nine are so interesting because they sound like they're right out of the, the Proverbs. Mm. You hear the vibe there? Like if you just pulled this out. Mm-mm. Yeah. Let me teach you, instruct you the way you should go. It sounds like, yeah. you know, handing on. Let me counsel you with my own sight. Be not. And then the, 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 the use of animals to illustrate is a common thing in the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes as well. Be. Be not like a horse, like a mule without sense, the bit and the reins, his adornment to keep him from drawing near you, especially eight and nine. It's kind of funny. Like if you just had verse all the way through seven Mm -hmm. and maybe add 10 and 11, if you just had one through seven, it'd be kind of a standard like like Psalm of confession, like Psalm 51 or something like that, right? Right. But then you get eight and nine and it's like, it becomes a wisdom Psalm kind of out of the blue, which is then anticipated with this title. I don't know how the NIV translates. Is it miscall? A mis- maskil? Uh-huh. A maskil? Yeah. So we don't know what that word means for sure, but the same root word is there in verse eight. Let me teach you. So it's related to teaching, instruction, wisdom, but it's... It, as a genre of psalm, we actually have no idea what these words mean. Just same with Selah off in the Kalim. We don't know for sure. Is this, does this mean like stand up? Does this mean switch speaker? Does this mean there's a guitar solo? Like we, we just don't know what they mean. You know, we know there, there's some, they, they, these would have had some sort of technical musical meaning that's okay. just lost to us now, you know? So if you, if you didn't have the, the Moskill at, at the heading, you might think that it's just a change of subject in eight, but okay. So that's just technical stuff, but I bring it all up to like this combining in this Psalm of the wisdom tradition and the, what we'll call the priestly tradition of, of confession, forgiveness, sacrifice, atonement, right? Mm -hmm. We see these two kind of coming together here. Mm. You get David and you get Solomon all in one in this, you know, uh, to, to put it briefly. You get a two for one. Yeah, and I, I don't know what that has to teach us. I mean, it's just a formal comment. But when I think about, so if if the big insight of the first segment today from you was uh, this kind of interweaving of individual and community mm-hmm. in confession and in worship and in experience, testimony. And instruction. 
Yeah. And maybe it's not a big insight. Maybe it's a small one that I want to kind of offer now in the second segment is what does it mean to kind of unite sort of wisdom and forgiveness or something like that, you know, because they seem to be directed in a different direction, you know, like, and, and as we move to, to preaching and praying in the third segment, we can figure out how to draw on that. But I wonder what it's like, because wisdom, wisdom tells you don't do stupid stuff or it ruins your life. Right. (laughs) But the priestly tradition tells you if, and when you do stupid stuff, there's forgiveness and restoration to the community. Yeah. (laughs) I, I, you're reminding me of something I just read this weekend from uh, a mentor leader who he was sharing that there's knowledge and there's wisdom. Knowledge is what you know about something. And wisdom is what you get after you put your knowledge to practice and yeah. you see actually what happens. <laughs> right. Then there's wisdom. Then you get the wisdom once you see how the knowledge actually works in real life. And so maybe, you know, we see the actual practice of you know, confession, forgiveness, and then the wisdom that comes from that. Like once you step back and look at that and see how it actually works, okay, here's, here's the wisdom now that we've gained. I love that because that opening, the double blessed or happy in the opening verses. Which I have actually, a thought of, yeah. Let's I talk about that because I, I feel like that's yeah. a synthesis of the priestly and the, the wisdom because – you know, blessed is the one who this, that, and the other is is a very much a wisdom way of talking, right? Happy is the man who has a wife who doesn't, you know, make his life harder. Ha- you know, happy is the the young man who studies. There, there, there's a lot of happy is or blessed is, and the word means flourish. You'll have a good life. It's about the good life. Mm-hmm. This word, happy or blessed. Okay, good. And, that's what I wanted to hear from you because I've. But it's I've also heard- priestly because priests pronounce blessings over the people. You know, so that's linked to forgiveness. You know, you're forgiven and then you're blessed. You're free to go, you know? Mm. So go ahead. What were, what were you going to say? Well, there's, I mean, this is also a poetic device that is, I like, implicit throughout the scriptures. It's called anaphora. And I would I would say the, the scriptures sort of originate, well, I shouldn't say they originate. I don't know if they originate or not, but it's one of the earliest texts that introduces this poetic form of anaphora, which for those who may not know, anaphora is simply um, the repetition of key words and syntactical rhythm or meaning or, or like the structure of the sentence. So you have key words that you begin every line with. And then it's also there's also a, um, a structure of the sentence that follows. And you just keep repeating it. And it's two of two or more. So it has to be two or more lines of the poem have to be organized that way. And it's known as an auditory pattern. So it's used primarily for poetry that is shared orally as a way of creating rhythm and memory and emphasis. And we see it used together with repetition here. So we have anaphora and then repetition of the words transgression, iniquity, sin, right? And what's so interesting to me, so we can look at the two those two things separately, but when I look at anaphora, like we see blessed who's who's, blessed who's who's, right? That's how it's been. So my question was, in the original language, is that anaphora there? Or is that something the translator created? Well, it's a bit of both. It's definitely anaphora. Okay. It's even more stark in the original and more poetic. Okay. So, oh, so there is no is and who. 
Okay. Those are just gone, which makes it even cooler, right? Okay, good. So let me do it in bad English. So it's not like Hebrew speakers were dumb and didn't have verbs. It's it's that they could imply the verbs. As good poetry will sometimes leave a verb out and you can track it. Cause you, you know, sometimes it's just cause you want the, the, the rhythm to work and you need to cut a word and, and you just leave it out. You know, what sometimes when I'm translating proverbs, especially when it says, blessed is the man who da, 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 it sometimes helps to just say, blessed colon one who this, you know, and a colon actually in English can, can do that. And there's just no punctuation in ancient texts. So often we're supplying words that actually punctuation might be able to produce because punctuation is often very strategic in poetry as a way of creating meaning for the eye without disrupting rhythm. Yeah. I mean, I, Absolutely. Yeah. Correct me when I talk about poetry because I, I don't know what I'm talking right. about when I do, but yep. you're the pro here, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're so, right. so, exactly. so here we go. So first English, it'd be blessed, forgiven, transgression covered sin. Uh, or his sin, sin of him. And then the next line, blessed the man not impute Yahweh to him iniquity and know in whose spirit deceit. So, I mean, I, I know I just basically took out all the verbs and all the relative pronouns, yeah. except for one, because there's only one. Now, now it sounds like an E.E. E. Cummings poem. <laughs> yeah, but you can feel the beats, right? Yes. Yeah, it's yes. just very – so then I'll make an attempt at the Hebrew. This is going – so actual – no actual – those who have uh, knowledge of Hebrew, <laughs> use your wisdom to forgive me <laughs> because this <laughs> so will be poorly pronounced. So, so here's excited. my attempt. Okay. Asher, Nesui, Pesha, Kesui, Hata'ah. Asher, Adam, Lo, Yashab, Adonai, Lo avon ve'en berucho remia. So asher asher the opening line, mm-hmm. and then the mm-hmm. introduction of the man who the Lord does not impute, and then the mm-hmm. contrast you get forgiven positive does not impute negative mm-hmm. right. Yes, um, yes. So yeah, there's definitely an, an afro with that in there too when you were reading in the Hebrew. Way yeah. more, yes. Yeah. Which is also an auditory pattern, right? Which again, and and this this could just be as simple as the, these early, you know, these early texts were primarily oral, right? So they're they're employing these auditory patterns um to help emphasize and 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 teach. But I also think because poetry is so multifaceted, it teaches us something about the truth in it, right? And what I think is so fascinating is just like you said, there's the contrast. When you have these parallel structures, it often can bring to light a juxtaposition or a contrast that's really interesting. So, so like you were saying, say that again. So, in the in the first sentence to the second sentence, it's the it's the positive and the negative, right? But it's but it's created in a in a similar syntactical rhythm. Absolutely. Yep. So you get uh, you get if you were just going to count syllables, which is, I know not how poetry works, but as a first glance, right? Yeah. You get one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, first line. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 
okay. the next line. Nah. And, and because of the way that some of those foots work, it, it, it basically lines up. Yes. And the first one is blessed, forgiven, transgression, covered sin. Yeah. So even that's double. You get a covering of sin and a transgression forgiven. Mm-hmm. And the next line you get, blessed the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. So it's, and so in some sense, then there's this extra clause. So maybe the next line we could think of as now one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So we could think of the second line as 18 syllables, but in some way there's like this extra one in whose spirit there is no deceit. So you get two positives, two negatives. You get transgression forgiven, sin covered. Second line, you get not imputed, no deceit in the spirit. And then you get characters named in the second line and none in the first. Yeah. That's why it's better to say blessed colon, transgressions forgiven, sins covered. Mm. Because there's no character in the first line. It's only in verse two that we then get blessed is the man, Adam, Adam, Mm -hmm. right? Blessed is the man whom Adonai, right? The, The divine name is pronounced. And there I see that communal individual, like God, the, in the first line, God relating, like, trans, it, it's what God has done for the body, right? Everybody. And then Bingo. The I line, didn't even like, think of that. Yes. It's the, it's the individual relationship, right? Of Adam to God and God to, to Adam. And again, that, that sort of, I think that's the power of things like anaphora and repetition is it. It, it lines things up so you can start to make connections between them. It sets as parallel, you know, ideas, reflections, images that you, as humans, we just, we're meaning making machines, right? Like we just can't help ourselves. We automatically start drawing conclusions, especially when things are set up in parallel structures, right? So that that's, yeah, that's really, when I look at this, the poetic structure of this, I, it feels to me it speaks to the truth of the content too, that they're trying wow, to draw yeah. attention to something, right? The, the the psalmist is trying to make the listeners pay attention to this, and then and I see that juxtaposition. So it's not anaphora, but it's it's repetition. When we have, oh, I just remembered something. I want to go back to what is the original language around blessed. So don't let me forget that because I I really am curious about that. But when we see trans, so. So we have introduced in those first two verses this, the, the terms, at least in the English, sin, transgressions, forgiveness. No, let's see, transgressions, forgiven sins. And then down in verse four through five, those words come up again. Yes, my sin and my transgressions. Yeah. Yeah. And so if we look at this as a poem, that's not an accident, right? That that repetition is intentional for what purpose? And again, if we have this parallel structure, it sort of like puts a spotlight on it of like, let's let's make a connection here between the way these words are treated in the first two verses and the way these words are treated in verses four and five. And there is a shift, right? It is, let me see here, I have my, in verses one through two, it's God's relationship with our sin and transgression. And then in verse five, it's David's or the character's relationship to their sin and transgression, right? Not not hiding it, being transparent about it, bringing it to the forefront, right? No, that's spot on, yeah. That, that poetic structure is really interesting to me. 
No, I love it. That's so great. Well, let's let's take a quick break and come back and talk about Blessed and talk about it, whatever else we want to do to land the plane with some uh, practical implications. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text here with my guest, uh, Kristen Taylor. And we are looking at Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's explore some sermon starters. Uh, where would we want to go with this? I, I mean, you, you mentioned one more question you wanted to come back to, and we can start with that because it may help get us where we want to go. Uh, you said you had something you wanted to say about blessed Oh, I just was curious. What is the and what is the original language there for blessed? Yeah, so it's it's Asher, Asher. So like the name Asher comes from this. Uh, okay. It's one of the it's one of the the twelve tribes of Israel has this as a name, mm. uh, and it has to do in terms of the. I mean, we don't want to commit the etymological fallacy and say that somehow words are somehow magical beings that carry with them their whole history. But it is kind of linked to like your walk and your way of life. And blessed also can be translated happy and happy works if you, especially if you understand happiness as philosophical history of beatitudo or uh, eudynamio in Greek. If you think of happiness or blessedness as flourishing, as things going well for you, the, 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 a good way of being the good life. What is the good life? Ah. That, that's kind of, I mean, that's, that's using slightly more Greek and European terminology, but that that's more familiar to a lot of our listeners uh, is still a little foreign to when we hear happy, we might think of an emotion, right? And emotions part of that. So a well-ordered emotional life is part of flourishing, mm. but it's not the whole of it. Right. Uh, and when we hear blessed, that's like a religious word for like, I got lots of stuff. I'm blessed. Hashtag blessed. Right? <laughs> and so I'm always, I've been experimenting with different ways to translate a share to kind of capture that. Sometimes I say flourishing. I mean, that, that's a sort of, that's a hip term right now. It'll probably be annoying in 20 years, but gotcha. maybe it's already annoying, but you almost could just say like, you know, it, it is well, you know. It is well with the man whom Yahweh does not impute iniquity. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Did that did that kind of help that quick yes. commentary? Absolutely. Yeah. I like that idea of a well-ordered life, a flourishing life, a life that is, yeah, put to rights based on these things. And then the hit, yeah, and, and I think, you know, a, a larger theme in this psalm that I saw that we didn't really touch on because we're focusing on the poetic form, but this idea of silence um, when we're quiet, when we're silent, when we try to hold or hide um, our sin, how that is disruptive to a well-ordered life or flourishing life, right? But it's bringing it into transparency. So actually the turning point here is not that you get your life in order and you figure it out and you are upstanding. And that's not actually how, where the flourishing happens. The flourishing happens with transparency, right? Before God. And this is not a private matter. We've got the worshipers sitting here listening. We've got the priests sitting here listening, right? It's when we can make it transparent. 
then we can be, we can be healed and forgiven. So anyway, beautiful. Yeah. So, uh, say you were, uh, preaching who knows, maybe you will. This is, this is the, uh, the Psalm for the fourth week of Lent. So, uh, which will be March 27th this year, although it would work, uh, anytime, of course, uh, scriptures are good in all seasons, but say you were preaching on this text and maybe you will, uh, where would you go? I mean, you don't just dump all your exegetical insights, you know, onto people, although hopefully you weave them in, but what, what would be the, the focus of how you would want to preach on a text like this? And you don't have to develop it. You just kind of pitch it. Think of, think of this as like a, a pitch meeting with people listening in. We'll both pitch an idea and then we'll, we'll call it a wrap. Yeah. I think, um, what strikes me is, you know, if we, this idea of, uh, testimony, the, 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 the communal aspect of this divine conversation with God and how that's so fitting for this season, um, dealing with COVID. I don't, I don't know how things are going for you down there. Canada has been a little bit more strict about our, our COVID restrictions. And, um, when Omicron hit, everything shut down again, and we all went back to virtual online and we're feeling pretty disjointed, I think, as a worship community and, and hoping that, starting with Lent, we can start to gather again as the body physically and in person. And and I just think that this idea is a salve to the soul, right? That like we are worshiping together. We are jointly in community with one another, having a divine dialogue and conversation with God. So I think I, I would go somewhere in that direction, linking it to sort of trying, you know, coming back. Also the significance of coming back in person for Lent for that season. And, uh, yeah, what does it mean to to bring all that to the table together in tandem with a conversation with God that we're not just having individually, but we need to have as a group now because we've been so isolated for so long. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. So I'm going to do a little cheat here and think about, I'm going to peek. I actually don't know off the top of my head um, what gospel text the lectionary has assigned for this same day. But my hunch is it's the, let's, let's test it and see if I get it. Okay. I don't know. I don't know what award I get if I, if I guess right. But, um, let's see if it's the Pharisee and the tax collector. Okay. Um, cause wouldn't that fit? Uh, let's see. Let me type in lectionary. Some people are like, how do you know where this stuff is? I type the word lectionary into a search <laughs> engine. Okay. So Lent for year C we're in. Yeah. And fourth, fifth Sunday, Psalm, what are we looking at? Psalm 32. So 32. fourth Sunday. Oh, even I'm wrong, but I'm wrong in the best possible way. <laughs> Here's the story. What is it? Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, and it proceeds from there. It's the prodigal son story with the with the whole story included, the older brother. Um Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. who is not blessed, who is not flourishing. He's actually cutting himself off from the blessings he's had access to mm. because he refuses this communal experience of forgiveness and restoration. So it would, that's such a familiar text, actually kind of preaching that text 
kind of from Psalm 32 would just be a fun twist on a familiar text. And then for someone who's not familiar with the prodigal son, they get to experience that story, uh, you know, fresh. Um, Cause it's always tricky. Like as preachers, we tend to spend a lot of time in the word. And so we get bored with the most famous stories, but even our congregants, let alone brand new believers, whether pagan or secular or what have you, like these stories are awesome and they just need to hear them. You know what I mean? Like prodigal son's a killer story. It needs to be told again and again and again. Um, and I love, you know, when you're talking about, you say preach it from Psalm 32, because we, you know, you had talked about the, uh, I forget the words you use, like the wisdom literature in it and the, what was the other priestly? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. What's the wisdom and the priestly perspective on, on the prodigal son? Uh, that's really, that's cool to think about. Because the younger son is a fool, but he's forgiven. He's a yeah. forgiven fool. Yeah, and, and he's made it transparent. Yes, he doesn't hide out. it. He doesn't hide yeah. it, which is a yeah. key moment that that's central in the story there in verse in verse five. I'm not going to hide it. I'm going to let it out mm-hmm. in community. This is not a private matter, right? Mm-hmm. It's gather the celebration. That's right. And then the older brother who has the semblance of wisdom. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He has yeah. the appearance of choosing the wiser path, but proves himself to, in the end be a fool because he re- refuses. The, this moment quiet. of forgiveness. Well, and yeah. he's not transparent about his transgressions. Yeah. He's not aware of or in touch with how he has transgressed his father, right? Well, and look and look at what the heart of his transgression is. Because it's not we don't have to go looking for secret sins in the heart of the right, elder right. son. We don't know. Yeah. Here's what we know. He doesn't come to the party. That's his sin. He's cutting yeah. himself off. That's right. And in some ways, therefore, doing exactly the same thing as his brother. That's he's right. cutting himself off from the father. Yeah. And it's not even like, I think not even like secret sins, but maybe just the, like the cutoff, like he's disconnected, right? He's not, even, yes. it's secret to him. It's not secret to anybody else. To Bingo. Him. Yeah. Bingo. That's right. Yeah. That's right. He mm. can't just own like, Hey, I don't really want to forgive this guy. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we could put it better. The story is just left off. We don't get the response of the, the elder son. Yeah. Maybe we, maybe we can preach a more hopeful sermon about the elder son. And say, the father is inviting the elder son to confess his sin of resentment because mm-hmm. that's his sin. Yeah. And if he confesses that, he can be restored as well. That's he's right. being invited. The father's running out to bring him in. It's, he's not just going out to scold him. I mean, it's left open. We don't know the response. Oh, my goodness. And that just connected for me. When you said the father's already inviting him and the father's not waiting on the transparency to offer the invitation. And we see that in Psalm 32 when it starts with blessed. Yes. There's no character there. It's already the action of God, right? God has already blessed. And <laughs> if you confess, blessed. then I'll give you blessings. Like, no, no, no. this is my way. I bless yeah. those who confess. Yeah. Yeah. It's there. I'm inviting it's you waiting. into that. It's just waiting for us to be transparent. It's That's waiting perfect. for us to connect, right? And and then participate in the parties. The table's already set. The party's already there. If the older son can just be transparent and honest about it. Well, let's write this sermon and preach it, Kristen. It sounds fun. All right. <laughs> I like I it. I'm actually preaching on March 20th, not that week, but the week before. And we're doing the lectionary. Well, so if I'm going to be listening to fresh text for whatever you come up with. I've for got, that. I've got. That would have been the week before for our listeners, but I'll just tell you anyway. It'll be Psalm 63 with Sarah Dirk if you do use the psalm. So I'll be listening. Yep. Yeah. 
Well, thanks so much, Kristen. I appreciate the time you gave. Uh, thanks to all our listeners. Uh, as always, thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this show without y'all. And uh, thanks especially to our patron saints. If you want to become a patron of the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and find ways to support the show. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>